This is Calgary Today with Angela Cocott on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. This story, of course, was unfolding around this time yesterday. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau issuing an apology on behalf of the federal government for perpetrating decades of discrimination against members of the LGBTQ community. I think we've heard the apology enough, but I wanted to find out if the apology is enough. John Paul Katungal, a professor in Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia, joins us today. Hello, John. Hi there. Thank you for having me. I read your column in the uh, conversation yesterday, and this was prior to uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau issuing the apology. So I, I know you wrote the column, not sure exactly what the federal government was going to do, but after hearing his apology, what was your reaction to it? Uh, I thought it was uh, surprisingly sincere and surprisingly comprehensive in its content. Uh, And I think that is a testament to the work uh, of the consultation uh, of the LGBTQ advisory uh, committee that was struck uh, to advise the government on how to proceed. Uh, That's also a testament, I think, to um, the activists who have been pushing for this uh, apology for a while. So uh, there was a lot in that apology, um, and uh, much more so than I had anticipated. Why is an apology so important? Uh, I think uh, at the most basic level, it uh, recognizes um, that the government, uh, the federal government, had a central role. Uh, in uh, shaping the lives and experiences of marginalized communities, which is to say that uh, the government was uh, a central actor in the marginalization uh, of members of the LGBTQ community. So uh, recognizing that, owning up to it, uh, and then uh, offering uh, sincere contrition as well as uh, financial and material redress um, to ensure that this doesn't happen again uh, goes some ways into ensuring uh, that uh, the future uh, for LGBTQ communities is better. JP, can you give my listeners uh, a sense of what was happening in the, well, it was up until 1997, I was reading, but the 50s, the 60s, because I think a lot of Canadians who aren't part of the LGBTQ to community mm-hmm. are kind of in the dark about why we're having to apologize in the first place. Absolutely. So uh, for this, I would recommend uh, listening to the full 30 minutes of the apology. I think the apology does a really great job of laying out the different ways uh, that the government uh, actively um, uh, created policies and engaged in practices that discriminated against LGBTQ2 folks. Um, uh, you know, Part of the apology centered the fact that European colonization enforced uh, and uh, imposed uh, Euro-Christian understandings uh, of binary gender, so uh, that there is only man and woman as categories that are possible. On to indigenous communities, many of whom have more complex, more than binary understandings of gender. So the foundation uh, of... uh, you know, the the marginalization of LGBTQ communities is colonialism. I think that uh, mentioning that in the apology uh, was a strong indication of um, the work that two-spirit people and indigenous communities uh, have pushed for. Um, 
since Confederation, uh, homosexuality was considered uh, criminal under the criminal code. And it wasn't until the late 60s when homosexuality was not, uh, was decriminalized. Uh, so there's that. And then the third thing is the so-called gay purge. Uh, the gay purge was uh, a very active program by the government to identify uh, and root out uh, members of the LGBTQ community who work in the civil service, in the military, uh, and in the RCMP. So uh, it entailed uh, very specific tactics of surveilling people, uh, interrogating them, uh, and uh, also blackmailing them. Many lost their jobs, many were demoted, uh, or many were forced to, to resign as a result. So uh, in, on that basis, there was a lot of uh, people who lost their jobs, whose careers were halted with all of the financial um, and social stigma um, effects that that entails. And I can't even imagine if someone in that time lost their job, what they would tell their family, because we have to take ourselves back to that time of people not being uh, forthcoming, not feeling comfortable with sharing their their sexuality. So I think even that would be hard for someone to tell their uh, family, their, could be their spouse, that why they've lost their job. So um, yeah, hard to wrap my head around that. And, and so when I talk about that time, mm-hmm. what do you say to those who believe in apology and we know there's going to be a $100 million compensation, that they're not needed because the decisions and the choices were made at a different time in our history? Well, I would say that the folks who were affected by them uh, are still here, right? And so the fact that they lost their jobs, their careers were halted, meant that they uh, lost uh, career advancement opportunities, pensions, right? And so uh, the discriminatory practices that led to them losing uh, these, you know, resources Mm -hmm. uh, is one aspect of, you know, the financial package that is a part of um, uh, of the apology that was negotiated as part of the class action loss, lawsuit. So there's that. But also the apology uh, recognizes very clearly that there are still a lot of ongoing struggles that are not unrelated to what was happening in the 50s and the 60s. So these ongoing struggles are struggles faced by trans and gender nonconforming people to spirit people, uh, people of color, for whom their marginalization is compounded by their sexuality and gender intersecting with socioeconomic status, uh, race, and other categories of difference. So the fact that these ongoing issues uh, are, are, you know, are still here uh, is a testament to the durability of the same processes um, that led to the gay purge in the 50s, 60s, all the way to the 90s. Right? It wasn't that long ago, uh, but also more broadly to the kind of colonial foundation uh, of the imposition uh, of binary gender and heterosexuality. Well, and I'm sure, uh, and I'm not sure what kind of feedback you got from your column in theconversation.com, but I'm sure you, you had a lot of readers uh, reacting to say, wait, are we going to have to be paying out um, even further into this as we, as we look at current situations and how the community is treated? Mm-hmm. Well, I haven't gotten quite that you know, reaction. Uh, and what I am asking for uh, is not necessarily you know, for the government to fork up. 
uh, the the money to ensure that uh, you know things like this never happen again. Although that would be useful, and that yeah. would be useful in part because it takes work and commitment uh, and on the ground labor to be able to make uh, changes to society, right? So the work of community organizations, uh, that's not done in a vacuum that requires a lot of work and support. And I think this apology opens up the possibility uh, for community organizations to then say, all right, so let's put our money where our mouth is. Uh, If we are going to really deliver on the promise uh, that this apology uh, offers, which is, you know, the promise that never again will this happen, then we need to create strategies for that. And that requires resources as well as political will. And and I'm glad you touched on that because just because there's an apology doesn't mean all is right now with our society and how it views lgbtq2 right exactly there are still a lot of issues that are ongoing um the apology contained or mentioned some of them uh disparate uh disproportionate health effects especially mental health suicide rates. Um, We've also actually experienced an increase in hate crime uh, in the last couple of years, owing partly to the rise of far-right movements and, you know, hyper-conservatism around gender and sexuality. Uh, And there's also been disproportionate rates uh, of homelessness and poverty uh, in relation to the experiences of particularly two-spirit Um, people, trans people, uh, and people of color. So uh, within the LGBTQ community, there is also inequality and differentiation. And so the the recognition of that uh, in this apology is, you know, is important. But also, you know, people have been saying this for a while as well. So um, hopefully, you know, this opens up the opportunity uh, to uh, create a way forward. JP, I'm remiss in actually saying you should define two-spirit because, I mean, this is part of awareness and education, and uh, I know a lot of my listeners are still trying to understand the LGBTQT, and now we're hearing more the two for two-spirit. You you talk about the Indigenous community. Mm -hmm. What is two-spirit? So my listeners are in the loop. That's a very good question. So two-spirit was a term uh, that was coined in the early 1990s, um, I think it was in Winnipeg, to create a pan-Indigenous term uh, to uh, identify uh, folks within Indigenous communities who take on roles and have identities and subjectivities that do not necessarily conform to the categories uh, man and woman, especially as they are defined in Euro-Christian terms. So um, two-spirit uh, people ha- have occupied particular social and spiritual roles uh, within many indigenous communities, um, scholars of two-spirit folks and queer gender and sexuality or indigenous uh, gender and sexuality traditions uh, have documented uh, the fact that they are often, uh, they often uh, take on the role of um, storytellers, healers, um, and caregivers uh, within their communities. Yeah, they're revered. Um, they're revered. Or, they're absolutely. Well, absolutely. I'd like to think they're still revered, but I, I think you go back to the colonialization, and it was almost as if take that away from the, the indigenous people and don't revere two spirits. Right. So there is an ongoing effort, particularly by the two-spirit uh, communities themselves, to reassert their place in indigenous communities and, um, you know, partly speaks to the 
partial success of colonialism in terms of really imposing uh, Euro-Christian understandings of gender and sexuality as normal, right? The uh, the ways that uh, certain indigenous communities have taken on uh, the normalcy of that is also partly what two spirit people are uh, are are, uh, are uh, organizing uh, on. So, JP, the apology, good start, and we'll see where it goes from here. Yes, we will. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you for having me. Take care. You bet. John Paul Katungal, a professor in Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia. And, yeah, he's right. You can go and listen to uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's 30-minute apology and um, um, to, to right the wrongs. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting lots of texts, and, and I know Danielle's talked about this, Rob's talked about this. This is, this is a big issue because we... Um, we talked about, um, it, th- someone was saying that this seems political, that Justin Trudeau is just doing this so he gets votes. I have to remind you that we had Prime Minister Stephen Harper standing in the House of Commons and apologizing for what the federal government did with the Chinese head tax. We've had governments in the past that have had to apologize and make amends for decisions that previous governments have made especially to an identifiable group. And I can't even get my head around having to lose my job over my sexual preference. I can't get my head around someone having to be in charge of a department where they are part of this purge, the gay purge, and the questions they would ask. So you can continue to send the text because I know a lot of people right now are are still very upset about, okay, what's the next group we're going to have to apologize and make payments to? I'm not sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't another one out there. We've got news coming up next. Calgary Today with Angela Cocott, weekdays at 3 on News Talk 770 Calgary.